Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 63, Confederate Arizona, The Battle of Mesilla. In the long history of the Civil War, we often encounter strange twists, turning points where history went one way instead of another. Of course, we usually see strong fundamental reasons why events turned out the way they did, for history is the result of choices and not merely random chance. But history recounts many attempts to force it into one shape or another, one pathway over another. That's where the United States itself came from. The people of the colonies chose to have a United States, and not Britain, by an act of decision. So too, the Confederacy came about because some men, at least, chose for there to be a Confederacy. Of course, it failed in the end, and failed completely. But in the process, the rebellion created a kind of unique circumstances where history became, or appeared to become, malleable. Men believed they could reshape everything. Perhaps they were even right. After all, the future of the United States really was reshaped completely, with abolition. The early and weak attempts at securing civil rights, and the complete destruction of separatism. But the men who started the rebellion not only opposed that final decision of history, they furiously strove to reshape the world in the other direction. And that is our story today. From the moment he took office, Confederate President Jefferson Davis promised peace if only the United States would leave him and his slave empire alone. This was, as Abraham Lincoln pointed out in his own inaugural address, impossible. The borders of the states made sense only when you viewed them as part of one united, federated nation, where Americans could go where they pleased. Divided, those same borders would inevitably spark war. There was another aspect, however, to Jefferson Davis's rather questionable plea for peace while outright preparing for war. Pro-slavery men in the old Union had, for 30 years or more, constantly pushed and pushed to expand slavery. Now they had a flag of their own. So the question naturally arose about what their policy would be in that regard. If they somehow avoided fighting the United States, and of course they really did immediately start a war, would the Confederacy have attacked Mexico, Spanish Cuba, tried to acquire territory in Central America? That never happened. Yet from the first days of the Confederacy, some among it saw, or thought they saw, opportunity to advance their cause in the desert southwest. In these lands, one from Mexico ten years earlier, they saw the opportunity to acquire their own Pacific port and expand the slave empire. There were roots to this notion, and they ran deep. First, remember that Jefferson Davis himself had promoted the idea of a transcontinental railroad connecting from New Orleans to California, and supported the Gadsden Purchase as a way of smoothing the required land rights. But the Southwest was an old land, with multiple peoples clashing, It had been so long years before anyone from the United States set eyes on it, or even before there was a United States. Spain established the colony of Santa Fe de Nuevo México a decade after the founding of the Virginia colony. And yet, while Spaniards came and settled there, they did not come to dominate the land. The tribes of Native Americans did not push them back, but they also resisted pressure in return. Although the New Mexicans possessed superior technology in the main, They also arguably joined the patterns of tribal lifeways instead of imposing their own. Isolated, both from what is now Mexico and also from Spain, the New Mexicans both governed and defended themselves. And they had many reasons to fight, both for gain and for protection. 
In New Mexico, every tribe raided its neighbors to replenish their pastures, take slaves, and steal goods. Sometimes they just hunted for sport, too. There's a long history of often pointless violence, though sometimes the point was the pointlessness. Massacres, after all, send a kind of message. Again, this was by no means merely a case of Europeans stealing one-sided violence to innocent Native Americans. Instead, the Navajo attacked the New Mexicans, who attacked the Apache, who attacked someone else in turn. It's also not nearly so simple as tribe against tribe, for each of the tribal groups had many subdivisions and bands that did not always get along. They were broad, extended cultural groups, with imperfect restraint on violence within the community. But most significantly for our purposes, it means the region had pre-existing slavery, although exactly how many slaves there were is unclear even today. There were no great slave plantations here, though. Slavery was marginal, but every group raided and stole humans as well as livestock. And this was the region that the United States acquired in its war against Mexico, and this was the region that sparked so much discontent over slavery within the United States. Small wonder, then, that almost from the moment the Confederacy formed, some men within it began to turn westward. Perhaps, they thought, the slave owners of New Mexico might join with the Confederacy. Or if not, perhaps there were enough southern-born settlers there now who would side with the Confederacy. As for the tribes, perhaps they too could be induced to ally with the Confederate interest. The war would disrupt communications of the United States and distract it from this region. That would slow or even halt payments to or trade with many of the Native American tribes. At the same time, the Unionist men could no longer use the Rio Grande for trade or travel, the most important waterway in this region. And that was the exact path that John Baylor intended to take. John Baylor was, shall we say, an interesting man. He embodied American ambition and energy, but also its darker side. He was capable of great racism, cruelty, and shocking violence when it suited him. He came from Kentucky originally, but had moved down to Texas after independence and stayed there. He joined the Texas Rangers, where he fought first Mexico and then against the Comanche. Bela earned some amount of repute fighting the latter. In those days, the Comanche tribe in particular raided deep into Texas and Mexico, but the militia slowly pushed them back. The Rangers, though earning a strong reputation for aggression and fury, had no discipline to their name. Baylor and many others like him would launch counterattacks against Native American bands or settlements. And they killed women and children, too, once they got into it. But the 1850s, on a whole, worked out very well for John Baylor. In 1851, he joined the state legislature, although he had not yet become a lawyer. That came two years later, in 1853, when Baylor was admitted to the Texas bar. And he kept going from strength to strength for a while. He had a wife and children, and was doing very well. In 1855, he became an Indian agent, one of the United States officers, given the task of negotiating with the native tribes. Agents got paid, and they often made a profit from trading with the tribes and bands as well. There, however, he hit a snag, primarily from his own personality. He became hostile, or more accurately, always was hostile, to a band of Pinatica Comanche on a reservation near Clear Fork, Texas. He wanted to attack them, out of fear that they were aiding other tribes in their raids, even though they had partially settled down. However, his superiors completely dismissed the idea. But Baylor refused to give up, and after two years of enduring his constant protests, they just dismissed him from the job. Undaunted, Baylor settled into a nearby ranch along the Brazos River, building up a good-sized herd. 
Now, the herds in those days did not match the massive cattle drives of a generation later, but several hundred cattle made for a pretty profitable ranch. Yet while still assembling his herd, Baylor received some unpleasant visitors in the form of raids by, well, the Comanche, who made off with his livestock. And he did not take this very well. Baylor traveled around the region and became something of an orator, and his sole theme was to condemn Native Americans in particularly harsh tones. Now, he had long been a public man, but as author Megan Kate Nelson describes in The Three-Cornered War, Baylor liked this new role as a frontier agitator. He also joined the staff of a newspaper which had a rather unwholesome editorial direction, urging violent retribution upon all Native Americans. The name of the paper was, and I am not making this up, White Man. It circulated fairly widely in northern Texas, more exposed to raids than southeastern Texas at this time. In 1860, Baylor put his money where his mouth was, so to speak. Following some raids by Comanche near his home, he gathered up his neighbors, gathered up weapons for them too, and struck out for blood. They found it. After several days of hunting, they found a Comanche camp and attacked. This turned into a running three-day battle, and the party killed eight men. But it's not clear whether these Comanche were at all related to the raiders or just the victims of circumstance. Innocent or guilty, however, they received no justice. There was no trial or judgment, just murder. Baylor, however, was a political man, and these were political times. Unsurprisingly, he fell hard on the secessionist side, along with the main editor of The White Man, H.A. Hamner. They opposed many of the more moderate policies of Texas Governor Sam Houston, including On the Destiny of Texas. When in July of 1860 the offices of the paper burned down, the editors blamed abolitionists instead of the rather more likely case of poor fire safety. However, during this time, leveling absurd accusation against vaguely identified abolitionist agitators had become commonplace, and not only in the words of Baylor's editorials. The fact that no one could ever locate these men simply meant they were remarkably clever and sneaky. In fact, it seems they were so clever and sneaky that they immediately became the hidden hand behind every misfortune. If a white slave-owning family fell ill, it must be wily abolitionist agitators giving poison out to the slaves. They started fires, killed cows, and persuaded slaves to murder their masters in the night. But you know, it was always a county or so distant, uh, too far to check for oneself. Just take the paper's word for it. They wouldn't lie. John Baylor, of course, quickly volunteered for service with the Confederate military once succession did break. Among other things, it promised to give him quick martial glory and raise his public profile. He became Lieutenant Colonel of the 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles, a pretty good position and one suited to his range war experience. However, unlike most Texans who occupied military sites along the coast or joined units bound for Virginia, Baylor found himself dispatched instead to secure the force the Union Army had been evacuating. This he did, moving from fort to fort along the Rio Grande northwest towards Fort Bliss, a short way from the water. Now, Fort Bliss was close to the border with the territory of New Mexico. Nearby El Paso, founded only a few years earlier, lay right on the water's edge, but it had not yet grown from the size of a village. Baylor arrived on July 5, 1861. And then a thought occurred. He could stay there and play defense against a possible Union invasion from New Mexico, or consider a more aggressive move. Being John Baylor, he hesitated but little. 
In fact, at the very moment he began to move, a letter was on its way telling him precisely not to do that. But the telegraph lines came nowhere close in those days, and he didn't receive it until far too late. So Baylor struck out north along the Rio Grande. The nearest town to Texas, New Mexico, in those days was Mesilla. Though still rather small, it was the largest town, at least as far as Albuquerque, far to the north, or even Santa Fe. The United States had built a little fort near Mesilla as well, owing to a dispute back in the day over whether the location had been within the new borders established after the Mexican-American War. Mesilla's importance came because there, the Rio Grande and a parallel road met the Butterfield Overland Trail, a pathway that stretched all the way out to California. Now, Baylor had very few men with him, partly because he had left small garrisons in each of the forts he passed going up the Rio Grande. When he entered Mesilla unopposed on July 23rd, he brought only 350 soldiers, or maybe a few men less. There he received some amount of public cheering. While many, probably most of the residents, had been Spanish or Mexican citizens originally, there were also Anglo-Americans who had come out to seek their fortune in mining or herding or some other trade. Now, these had mostly come over from Texas or other southern states, and more or less supported the Confederacy. So Baylor's detachment received a warm welcome. However, the Union would have something to say about this, if only briefly. Not far from Messia, Major Isaac Lind stood guard at Fort Fillmore. Earlier in the year, Colonel Canby ordered him to occupy the site, which he had done in early July. Unfortunately, though Major Lynn had served in the Army for 40 years, he evidently had conserved no energy left for this crisis. He accurately identified the fort's weaknesses, but did not spend any time repairing them, and three weeks was more than enough to create a solid defense. More to the point, he failed to recognize a crucial fact. The fort, it was true, could not be perfectly secure against artillery. Some nearby hills would allow an enemy with good guns to bombard the fort. But he failed to realize that while he had only one battery of artillery, the Confederates at this point had little or none. First, they could hardly spare many guns. In the east, the Confederacy was indeed grabbing artillery stockpiles from major bases such as Norfolk. However, in Texas, they could only put their hands on whatever field pieces the Union forts held and some others kept in militia armories. Meanwhile, getting those up to Messiah would take time. During this time, Major Lind might receive reinforcements. He had ample supplies, and the Confederates could not cut him off. Even in the worst case, he would not be completely outgunned. On July 25th, Major Lind moved to attack Baylor, with about equal numbers, though a slight edge on the Union side. Lind advanced towards the town of Messiah, while Baylor posted his men at the eastern edge of town. In late afternoon, Lind sent two men ahead to demand the surrender of the Texans which Baylor completely refused. In response, Major Lynn fired a couple cannon shots, which prompted the mayor of Mesilla to come out and complain about the risk to civilians. Bizarrely, this apparently worked because Lynn did not bother to fire his guns anymore, and ordered a cavalry charge instead. This kind of maneuver might have worked in more open ground, but as a military tactic when advancing against riflemen concealed behind cover, it was an utter fiasco. The cavalry got stopped by bullets flying at them, meandered about in confusion, and then broke and retreated. The battle fell apart into half-hearted musket fire back and forth. Now Baylor, a fiery man if ever there was one, assumed that Lind was just backing up so he could strike a good blow. But that blow never landed. Instead, Baylor found his surprise that Major Lind had retreated. 
Indeed, Baylor thought this might be a trick, and prepared for an attack again the next day, but landed holed up inside his fort. Though only briefly, although the skirmish had hardly cost any lives, he managed to come up with another brilliant plan, which certainly showed his quality. Major Lynn decided to cut and run. Yet despite decades of service in the army, he managed this so poorly that the result was, well, the utter surrender of his command. First, he failed to secure adequate water supplies, even though there was plenty available. He failed to destroy the fort's stores properly before leaving, and he then moved slowly and without cover of darkness. Unsurprisingly, Baylor spotted him. Although Baylor had originally hoped to surround and bombard Fort Fillmore and its ineffectual defenders once he got some artillery up, he instead gave chase. Lind, as it turned out, could not even run away properly. After a sweltering day, his men had grown exhausted. One by one, they fell out of line as their water supplies ran out, others throwing away guns and supplies as they lost the strength to carry them any farther. Lind also managed to leave his command's water carts behind, mostly because he tried to cut across sand where the wagons couldn't keep up. By the time Baylor caught up with him, Lind was ready to give up with the last hundred men. Frankly, this was probably all for the best, given that his efforts to this point had functionally ceded a crucial corridor in southern Mexico, already had resulted in the functional loss of two companies and more, and let his cannons slip into Baylor's hands. In the end, Baylor more or less laughed off the incident as a bit of a lark. He had hardly taken a casualty, and captured a Union force slightly larger than his own. He tried to recruit the soldiers, but only a small number, 20 or 30, took him up. Instead, Baylor paroled most of them sending them back home, but out for the war. Having captured the Union supplies, he did give those men enough to get them back to safe territory. Taking advantage of the moment, he called in enough pro-Confederate men to launch a succession convention of sorts, which resulted in one of the more unusual details of Civil War history, the Confederate Territory of Arizona. Now, if you look at a map, you will note that the state of Arizona lies far to the west of Messiah. However, that's not the Arizona Baylor was referring to. Instead, Baylor's Arizona was the southern half, more or less, of the entire New Mexico Territory, which covered all the modern states of New Mexico and Arizona. It was a bizarrely thin strip, and quite frankly, there were hardly any Confederate loyalists in most of it. But those are the borders as declared anyhow. The territory he claimed, at any rate, might allow the Confederacy to advance into California. In a hypothetical post-war peace, they could maybe build a railroad out that way. Now, Baylor had no authority to do this, but he correctly assumed that the government in Richmond would sustain him. And in this, he was entirely correct. Jefferson Davis happily confirmed his title as territorial governor, and prepared to dispatch more troops to the area. They would be needed, because the Union men had thousands more soldiers, although they still had to concentrate in order to bring that strength to bear. The pre-war army had dispersed throughout the territory, keeping order and often managing disputes and trade much more than they fought anyone. But Baylor had threats from other quarters as well, Mexico and Native Americans, most particularly the Apache tribes. He had no agreements or treaties or arrangements with either of them. Within a year, they would bring him to unutterable grief and the end of Confederate Arizona. Yet Baylor himself would be the cause of most of his own troubles. Riding high from success, he allowed the worst aspects of his character to lure him into more violence, cruelty, and foolishness that cost him his precarious position. However, that fate lay in 1862. In the meantime, the Confederate government dispatched General John Sibley 
on a mission to recruit more soldiers for an invasion of New Mexico. That coming fight would determine the final fate of the Southwest. Crucially, it was a fight the Union would get to have on friendly ground. Despite the Confederate success at Mesilla, most New Mexicans did not go over to their side. Instead, they voluntarily supplied, or even volunteered for, the Union Army, determined to defend their homes. The territorial legislature voted to side with the Union, even though the practice of enslaving local Native Americans had dubious legality within the United States. The Lincoln administration, distracted by the vast task of handling the war, could hardly spare any much time or attention for New Mexico. But its officers within the territory would take firm control when necessary. They anticipated more Confederate advances. Colonel Edward Canby, for one, intended to be very prepared for the next battle. As for Major Isaac Lind, he returned east. Canby recommended that he be completely removed from the service for, well, utter incompetence. Congress and the President agreed, and he became one of the few men personally shamed by the loss of his military commission for mishandling of his duties. In the post-war period, Lynn managed to have the order stricken and his rank formally reinstated, but only after no one really cared anymore. He embodied the exact opposite of Baylor, a man seemingly with no fight in him. The only trait the two shared was evidently a lack of clear judgment. In John Baylor, it showed his ambition and aggression. In Lind, it became confusion and cowardice. That's all for this time. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next episode.